Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. Welcome to the Talking Biotech Podcast. It's the weekly podcast about agriculture and medicine with an emphasis on biotechnology and the good things we can do for people and the planet. My name is Kevin Fulta. I'm a professor and a podcast host. And today we're going to continue our emphasis on COVID-19 and trying to unravel the misinformation by providing you with fortification for good information. So something that you can share with others. We're going to talk to experts because in an age where everyone thinks they're an expert, except they don't think the experts are experts, it helps us to understand where the people who are studying this carefully are coming from and what they understand. So today we're speaking with Dr. Natalie Dean. She's an assistant professor at the University of Florida College of Medicine and in the College of Public Health and Health Professions. Uh, she's uh, in the Department of Biostatistics, so knows a lot about the math of a pandemic. So welcome to the podcast, Dr. Dean. Hi, Kevin. Thanks for having me. I'm really happy to have you aboard because I especially happy because you're a colleague at the same institution as well as um, a very well-respected scientist. And I love the fact that you have been so active on Twitter. And, and I really hope that it's that kind of communication that I want people to learn from you here and then step into that same forum. So we're going to give them something to think about. You know, we're here talking about COVID-19 today and the epidemiology around it, but what is your background like and what other instances that are similar have you studied? So I'm a biostatistician. So biostatistics is very closely related to the discipline of epidemiology, but it's a little more, uh, it's even more quantitative. It's more focused on the statistics and the methodology. So I, there are lots of different specializations within that, but I focus specifically on infectious disease epidemiology. So I've been studying infectious diseases since I started my PhD thesis. I originally studied AIDS, HIV AIDS. And, um, and then when I arrived at the University of Florida about five years ago, I started working on Ebola. And so I've been very focused on emerging pathogens since then. So Ebola, Zika, loss of fever, We've been thinking about pandemic flu. And so what my particular research is about vaccines that target these different emerging pathogens and how we can think about creative strategies for evaluating vaccines during pandemics. So I've been very focused on pandemics. <laughs> well, it's, it's actually interesting that you bring this up because the last guest was the guest who had the article on Medium about the vaccine Manhattan Project and how you can use paralyzation to be able to accelerate discovery science and, imp and implementing vaccine strategies. So it really fits nicely. Um, one of the things that's been really frustrating for me as a scientist has been to watch the emergence of armchair experts. And so all the people who have all of a sudden become experts in modeling and epidemiology how do epidemiologists really feel about the folks who are either rejecting expert opinion or promoting 
non-expert opinions. It's kind of funny because epidemiology is actually a pretty broad discipline, and there are lots of different types of epidemiology. There's chronic disease epidemiology, nutrition, it's people who just focus on cancer or genetics. And so infectious disease epidemiology is a relatively small community within that. And so I feel like what I've seen from epidemiologists is a lot of them are reluctant to chime in because they know what they don't know. And they know that um, even though they study epidemiology and they're familiar with a lot of these concepts, they leave the infectious disease stuff for the infectious disease experts. So what we're really seeing is people kind of from other disciplines who tend to claim more expertise. I'm not seeing it from a ton of epidemiologists. Okay. So it's mostly uh, people who are in maybe remote areas of web, web expertise, like the, you know, the television doctors and TV pundits that, that I've been watching. And it's been really frustrating because it seems like we're in an epidemic of noise, like a pandemic of misinformation at the same time. And are you get that same sense? So being part of the infectious disease community for so long, it's really easy for me to pick out who are the experts and who aren't. So on Twitter, for example, the people I follow are the people I really trust. And so I've been able to block out a lot of the noise. I think other people are subject to it a lot more because they don't quite know how to filter. But I've been able to um, get a pretty good stream of people that I trust. So I'm not seeing as much of the misinformation. <laughs> I'm fortunate in that way. <laughs> Well, maybe you can help me here. You know, if I put you on the spot a little bit, could you name some of the people that you follow that our audience really should look to for trusted information? I think the best suggestion would be there are some really nice curated lists on Twitter. So um, Ellie Murray, uh, Epi Ellie on, um, on Twitter, she has a curated list of experts. And uh, yeah, there, there are a number of these lists um, I think if you can find one that has a lot of followers, I think the Epielli's has probably over 10,000 followers or something, just following that particular list. Those tend to be of good quality. It's really important because, you know, we're sitting out here, I'm a scientist and I've taken statistics and biostatistics courses, and even I don't get into the depth of statistics, certainly that you do. And I'm very naive with respect to this. And so when I can't interpret these things, especially some of the levels of analysis that people use, I, I really have a hard time understanding how, you know, Joe Sixpack becomes such an expert in this. So let's go back to the basics of the raw data. How reliable are the data? And do you think that when we look across COVID-19 detection and, and the mortality rates and things, is this stuff being underreported or overreported? Or do you have a sense of that? Everything's underreported. So definitely, to some degree, deaths are underreported. To an even bigger degree, we know that cases are being underreported. So in general, it's the big issue is underreporting, but there's just going to be different levels across different areas because, for example, detecting cases relies on having a, lot, a high testing capacity and having the infrastructure to you know, get those people tested and get their results met, you know, get back to them. And so, especially early in the epidemic, we knew that there were constraints on testing, so we were only really capturing the people who were most severely ill. And that's why, you know, when we see 
mortality rates, for example, across different areas, we know that the mortality rates were inflated because we were only capturing the most severely ill people. And we were missing a lot of the people who had milder illness. And we're certainly missing all the people who don't have any symptoms at all, who are asymptomatic. So we know that in general, what we see, we call it a crude fatality rate because we know it's an overestimate. I see. So just to clarify for myself and for the audience, we're talking about a mortality rate. We're saying the people who, out of the total number who are infected or have had infection, the number that have died, right? So if you're not detecting all of the people who have it, you don't really have a denominator to compare against. Is that where we are? Exactly. Yeah. So there's a few different quantities that we discuss. We did, we discussed the case fatality rate, which the denominator is people who are symptomatic cases, and the, the numerator is deaths. And then we talk about the infection fatality rate, which is what you just referred to, where the denominator is actually everyone who's infected and includes people who might not have any um, symptoms at all. And so it's really hard to get the denominator for that second one. Although from a you know a personal perspective, that's what's probably more of interest to people. So given that you are infected, what you know what is your likely outcome? Well, if you look at those numbers and the rates and and total raw numbers, and you compare, say, U.S. to Italy or South Korea or other places that have gone through the the meat of the pandemic. How do we compare? It's really hard to compare. So it really depends a lot upon that underdetection. And so when we look at places like South Korea or Taiwan, I mean, they have much lower fatality rates. And that's because they're really capturing that big part of the iceberg, the bottom part, which are these people with pretty mild illness. So that is the biggest driver of differences between um, countries, how much they're detecting these milder cases or whether they're even able to detect some asymptomatic infections. But there are also other things that drive differences. If a hospital is overwhelmed, a healthcare system is overwhelmed, we're going to see worse outcomes. Italy certainly has experienced that. If they have an older population, they'll probably see worse outcomes as well. So there are some other differences, but the big difference is that denominator. Yeah, I guess the U.S. has um, different comorbidities too. Is that kind exactly? Of true? Yeah. So we know that there are certain underlying conditions that put people at greater risk. So if you're in a population where there's a lot of hypertension, we would expect to see a higher fatality rate in that population. And what about the surveys that have been done? So there's been a lot of uh, talk about zero surveys where they've looked at places like Iceland or I think it was uh, Santa Clara County or Santa Barbara County or a place in California that they have attempted to get an idea, try to get a handle on who has been exposed, how deep is the um, potential or how, how widespread is the antibody to this and how reliable are those numbers? Yeah. So the purpose of those Sara surveys is that it's really hard to capture those asymptomatic infections or those mild infections. Not only would you need those people to be able to access testing for people who don't have symptoms at all, you would, how would you even find them? How would you even know who to test? And you need to capture them at just the right time to detect you know, their viral load within maybe a short period. So it's really, really challenging to do that. So the seroservies are great because by looking at antibodies, we're basically assessing if at any point you know, within the past few months they've been infected, whether they have detectable antibodies. So 
Sero surveys are are great for establishing, you know, overall how much infection has occurred in the population. And that's nice because that doesn't rely on limitations in testing or these potential biases about who you're detecting. Um, But they are still, uh, the antibody tests are new, and so they're not fully validated or no, no, no. I understand. I mean, that's exactly the problem is that how, how good is a test? And if you're getting false positives or false negatives, it again, it messes with the denominator. And I think, you know, we've talked about this a lot on another podcast I do called Science Facts and Fallacies, where it's so hard to make any good calls because we just don't have the data yet. And I think this is, you know, the, the flux that we're seeing. Um, So we're speaking with Dr. Natalie Dean. She's an assistant professor at the University of Florida. And we're talking about COVID-19 and some of the trends that we're seeing in terms of epidemiology and statistics. This is the Talking Biotech Podcast. We'll be back in just a moment. Since its beginning almost five years ago, this podcast has served to target misinformation about science while inspiring applications of new technologies. The current COVID-19 crisis was a shock and woke a wave of instant experts that can armchair quarterback a solution for you that defies the guidance of actual authority. Now, I don't know about yours, but my Facebook thread is a steaming stream of conspiracy and miracle cures. I thought this pandemic would bring us closer to science when actually it stirred the desire to shun those that actually know best. What do those eggheads know anyway? We can think of it as pandemic dunning Kruger, a pandemic, if you will. The people that understand viruses, vaccines, and epidemiology the least are the most confident in their errant positions. They also seem to dominate the communication space. So it's up to you, not only to learn as much as you can about the situation, but then immerse yourself into the discussion. Use social media to share good stories, quality podcasts, and solid science. Engage the pseudo-experts and their false bravado. Remind everyone that this is a time of uncertainty and it's best navigated by scientists at the helm. Not preachers, television pundits, militia dudes, your aunt, or even political leadership. Turn them all off and listen to credible experts that have dedicated their lives to public health. Identify and share good media. That's our role to give you something to share as you engage those that believe they know the answers when actually nobody does. And good scientists admit that. The best way to find answers faster is to rely on the skilled and steady hand of scientific expertise. And that's what we'll continue to bring you here on the Talking Biotech Podcast. And now we're back on the Talking Biotech podcast. We're speaking with Dr. Natalie Dean. She's an assistant professor at the University of Florida. She's in the College of Medicine and the College of Public Health and Health Professions. And she's talking to us today about the biostatistics and the epidemiology around the COVID phenomenon. And before we broke, we were talking about um, the testing. 
and the incidence of false positives and false negatives and the implications of those in understanding the, the penetrance of this disease in a population. So what do we really need to think about when we consider you know, those variables in widespread testing? So the big issue with some of these antibody tests is that false positives can occur. So we don't really know exactly why they occur. You know, maybe someone had some other coronavirus infection, like a common cold. You know, there are lots of different reasons why people can have different responses. But the big issue when you're trying to measure something rare and most people are really negative, you can quickly have too many false positives that even outnumber the number of true positives. So that's a real issue when you talk about for an individual making an assessment whether or not they have some sort of immunity. And if we can't trust the result there, then how should that person make decisions about what they should do, You know, whether they should engage in riskier behavior? But at a population level, it actually can be adjusted statistically. So there are ways that you can adjust for a known rate of false positives or a known rate of false negatives. And so at a population level, you can handle that. The results will be more uncertain if the tests are not very good, but you can still get an unbiased estimate. Okay, that, that's really good. I, I would automatically think that if we were having trouble at the individual level, that how do we form policy? How can we begin to even think about that? But I guess you could correct for that if you know the rate of false positives and false negatives. So yeah, at a population level for these types of studies, you can still say something pretty reliable as long as the tests are well understood and their their features are well characterized. At the individual level policies are where we really don't feel comfortable right now trying to make you know personal assessments. I kind of picture your situation and you know as a biostatistician who has expertise in infectious disease, and this story unfolding, I kind of see you like, you know, like the pinata has been broken and you're, you know, running around picking up candy. We've had six weeks of data now just pouring in on all different levels. And are there patterns that are emerging? Are we really learning anything about uh, the places or conditions that seem to be most um, conducive to spreading the virus? Absolutely. I mean, this is a new disease and we've learned just a shocking amount about it. I mean, there's still a lot more to learn, but just the pace of scientific discovery is astounding. And so, you know, we've learned a lot. I think right now, one of the biggest interests is who are the high risk groups? And what we're really seeing is that it's people who are in these high density situations where they live and work closely together indoors. And we're seeing these clusters of transmission there like in nursing homes, prisons, uh, meatpacking plants. Uh, in Singapore, they had a, an outbreak in migrant workers who live in dormitories. So it's these situations where people can't just kind of stay home and separate, where they have to be together in close settings, where we're really seeing these large outbreaks. And this is the part that kind of bothers me more than the rest of it, is that here in the States, we have an outbreak in a nursing home, it's able to be managed and detected. And, you know, even though there's going to be an enhanced mortality because of the, uh, you know, clearly the, the population there is compromised in some degree. What about the rest of the world? I mean, there's places around the world that probably have very little testing, yet still are experiencing some level of this disease transmission, you know, including parts of the world where they don't really believe in viruses where they, you know, they think if you get sick, it was because of spells and stuff. So 
are there hotspots in the world that are really um, starting to emerge or be concerning to people watching this? Yeah. India keeps me up at night. I mean, I really am worried about countries where there's it's just very densely populated. I mean, sub-Saharan Africa, just where the testing is going to be very limited. So, I mean, these countries do have a lot of experience with infectious diseases that they can leverage. And so, you know, for example, in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, I mean, they they have a very challenging situation, but they have, you know, learned so much from their experiences with Ebola that I do think that they'll have some some strengths that we can learn from, you know, in terms of responding quickly to uh, emerging infectious diseases and pandemics. But at the same time, they're just going to be so challenging when you just don't have the testing capacity. You're really flying blind. I mean, that's the way the U.S. was at first. It's really, really hard to you know, make good decisions when you don't even know exactly where the virus is spreading. So right now, when we analyze the numbers that we're seeing and we're looking at, you know, this flat curve, right? Uh, when do, when epidemiologists really start to thinking about this, how do they recommend ways to not just flatten the curve, which means one person being sick for every person uh, getting better, right? Um, how do we make that incidence go down? What are the values of things like social distancing and best vaccines? Yeah, it's a really challenging problem, and we're going to need a lot of different strategies at once. It's not going to be any single strategy that's going to work because this is a challenging virus. It spreads pretty easily. There's not a level of immunity in the population. We know that there's some level of transmission that occurs before people have symptoms. That makes it very hard to use traditional symptom-based procedures where you're isolating people kind of once they have symptoms. So, you know, in order to really drive down transmission enough, we'll need something that can capture people earlier on. So the big things we're really talking about is building up testing to a really high level. So not just testing people who are pretty sick, but really being able to test even mild illness, to be able to test people who are at high risk, even if they don't have symptoms. So maybe testing people who work at nursing homes, you know, every so often, or people who work in hospitals. Some hospitals are now testing all inpatients. So I think having a lot of testing so that we can pick up people pretty quickly and refer them to isolation. That's going to be very important. We're also going to have to modify our behavior to some degree. I mean, certainly we hope that things can go back to normal to some degree, but I think many of us are going to be continuing to work at home longer than we planned on doing it because the idea is that we all, you know, where we can contribute by lowering risk to our communities, we should be doing that. No, that, that makes a lot of sense. But, you know, when we, especially when we start thinking about, you know, how, how we're going to go forward, is there any kind of consensus among people who study this thing? So I'm not putting you on the spot um, about this idea of opening up the states, you know, the idea of letting some sort of um, uh, letting our letting our restrictions ease. Is there any sense or feeling about how far those could be done successfully or is it something that's totally off the board in terms of how people are thinking about the continued spread of the, the, the virus. The unique thing about this pandemic is that it's everywhere, just about. So, 
you know, we don't need to just think in hypotheticals. We can look at other countries and see what's going on. So we can look at places that have had success. I mean, South Korea and New Zealand come to mind as places where they've really done a a very good job of keeping things under control. And we can look and see what they've done and try and replicate it. The issue is that there needs to be the political will, there needs to be the infrastructure. It's just a lot of hard work. And so we need to see you know, the hard work go into the field to start really getting the level of testing we need, starting to do that contact tracing and all these other interventions. And in those countries are, you know, have more normalcy than we do. Um, but we kind of have to earn that. Well, what is contact tracing? Contact tracing is a cornerstone of um, infectious disease containment. The basic idea is that you identify someone who is sick and then you know they they arrive at the hospital they're sick and they're confirmed with testing and then you identify everyone that they've been in contact with like their family members or neighbors or coworkers and then you start tracking them so you call them you tell them to monitor their symptoms you tell them to stay at home ideally you test them as well and in that way you identify people who are at highest risk and if you can prevent those people from spreading disease then you can um, contain transmission. And so that's something that worked very well for Ebola. So I was part of um, a vaccine trial where if you have a vaccine, you can actually go out and when you trace people, give them the vaccine and that way contain the disease. So it's just a cornerstone of trying to track and, and contain. It's really interesting. I, I've, I've learned so much over the last few weeks about you know, what infectious disease specialists do. And it's, it's really amazing in how, how we can head these things off. And is, is there any real guidance that can come from this in the event that something in the future were to happen? Like, so let's say the next coronavirus, the next zoonotic event, or, or even some sort of a bioterrorist event. Is there anything that we've really learned from this one, or are we still learning? Well, we're definitely still learning, but we've learned a lot. I think the countries that have had a lot of success, I mean, South Korea comes to mind. That's a country that has faced a coronavirus outbreak before. In 2015, they had an outbreak of Middle East Respiratory Syndrome that was exported, or MERS, that was exported from Saudi Arabia. And so from that, they learned where their gaps were in their systems, you know, in their supply chains, in their, um, you know, uh, infection control at hospitals. And so they had those systems in place and they had that memory, The you know, the people had this memory of experiencing this severe disease. And so people were ready to comply and stay home and follow the rules. I think in the U.S. we have an it can't happen here mentality. And as a result, people don't always take things so seriously until they see it right out their door and it personally affects them. So I think that this is certainly shaking off some complacency that, um, yeah, that will be applicable in the future, but we still have a lot to deal with now. <laughs> well, well, you live generally where I do, and I don't know if you've been out and about, but I've noticed a lot of very, um, lax behavior with respect towards taking it seriously. And I don't know if you, have you, um, noticed that in your community? I'm working so much. I'm barely leaving the house. So I'm actually, I've had journalists ask me about this. Like, what do you think about people who aren't taking it seriously? I said, I'm the wrong person to ask because I barely leave my front yard. 
Yeah, it's, I, I I understand that feeling. I've been locked inside too and haven't left the property, you know, sometimes for five days on end. But I've wandered out to places like, and I live out in Archer, so I live, you know, away from the university. But uh, I've wandered out uh, to some of our grocery stores and it's a whole different world because they don't even really look like they're complying with a lot of the rules that have been set by the county. And I think it's just that they don't have the the human being power to be able to enforce these things. You know, these are tiny little stores. And so it becomes really uh, kind of a, a hotbed for for potential transmission. And, and so I just was kind of surprised by that. So I, the other day when I knew that I would have an expert on, I put out over social media that I would have an expert on. <laughs> and people are really excited to hear your thoughts on a couple of different issues. And so I got a question from Daria Kuskowska, who says, is banning being outside supported by science? It doesn't seem so. And that a new study of more than 300 outbreak clusters of COVID-19 in China reveals that the majority of outbreaks were fueled by indoor transmission of the disease, while outdoor transmission was scarce. So any thoughts on why politicians would say stay home if the real place where it's being transmitted is at home? Yes. So stay at home is a simplified message, right? I actually think it's a good idea for people to get outside. The idea is you get some fresh air, you get some vitamin D, you know, it's good for mental health. It's hard to be locked inside. So as long as it's safe, that's the big issue. So, you know, as long as you're not going to the beach and then going with with friends after for lunch and then you're closely sitting together and you know it's it's still about maintaining that physical separation from people who are not in your bubble already like my family's in my bubble so I don't I don't need to worry about being far away from my kids or my husband I mean we're already all together but it's when you're interacting with people who aren't in your bubble so but but I think it's a really nice thing to spend some time outdoors if you can yeah, I agree. Uh, the next question comes from Yvette Ross. She says, how many people do they think are realistically infected in the U.S. right now above the 1 million diagnosed cases? And given the number of people who did not get a test because they were told to just quarantine and that uh, stay home or they were just asymptomatic. So, so far there have been 1 million total diagnosed cases in the U.S. And we know that that is an underestimate of the total number of people who've been infected since the epidemic started here in the States. And so one question that we're trying to sort out is, how, you know, how big is that under detection? So we can think about maybe something like an extrapolation factor. And so there have been different estimates of what that looks like. My guess is it's somewhere in the order of 10 to 20. So for every one case, you're missing about 10 to 20 infections. It's a lot. Um, and that's going to change as testing gets better. But it's, you know, it's there's still a, a significant number of under detection. So if I had to guess, I would say something around 12 million. But, you know, people who've been infected since the, um, the pandemic started in the U.S., but with a lot of uncertainty around that. Yeah, that's, uh, I could see that. Uh, ben Schaefer asks, I'd like to know more about reinfection rates and antibody buildup. I've heard stories of reinfection in places like Asia. And what is the likelihood of that? Or is there is it even true? So I guess the question really is, can you become reinfected? I haven't seen any credible evidence of reinfection. The things that we've seen are people who uh, have positive tests 
and then they test negative for virus, and then they test positive again later. But that doesn't mean reinfection. We know that the tests are not perfect, so we know that sometimes they can give false negatives. So the most likely scenario, I think the scientists, you know, other scientists would agree with me, is that those negative tests were false negatives. And we also know, you know, that's supported by the fact that people can shed virus part parts for a very long time. So they may not be actively infectious or, you know, have virus that could infect others, but their little bits of the RNA can can shed and those will be picked up by the test. So and that can happen for weeks. So that's most likely what we're seeing are these positive tests coming very late that are just due to shedding from the same original infection. Now, see, you just blew my mind with something here. So if you're able to shed virus parts, could you actually mount an immune response to those parts that are being shed or is there just no evidence for that? So you start mounting an immune response somewhere in the middle of your active infection. And but but what we know that's kind of a little bit unique about this virus is that when you start building up an antibody response, your viral load doesn't immediately drop, it kind of slowly tails off. So sometimes people think, okay, once you're antibody positive, that means you're safe to go out. But that's that's probably not justified at this point because you can have be positive um, with antibody response and potentially still be infectious. But most of these late positive tests are really just people who are no longer infectious, but just have little bits of of virus. I see. And and those are PCR-based tests, right? So you're picking up the nucleic acid very sensitively? Exactly. Okay. Uh, Elso on Twitter says, what if a country starts a quarantine too early? Is that a bad thing? That's an interesting question. Maybe. (laughs) You tell me. (laughs) Yeah. So it's, a complicated, you know, decision to decide what to do. And no country is taking the decision to lock things down lightly. And really what happened was we saw these very fast evolving epidemics, particularly in China and in Italy and Iran, and where things can quickly get out of control. And so, you know, China didn't lightly make the decision to lock down their whole, their whole country. So they were learning from what they had seen in one region and applying it to other places. And so this all kind of feeds into this prevention paradox where if you, you know, if you do the right thing and lock things down early and things don't take off, people say, why did you lock things down at all? But the reality is when you start to see some level of transmission in the community, as we've seen in most places in the U.S., then you do need to take precautions. Otherwise, things will just, you know, um, quickly take off. Uh, are people really anticipating a second wave with this as people start to break quarantines? Yeah, it's a very real concern. So basically, if people resume normal behavior, we know that things can spread quickly. So the big thing driving down numbers right now is so many people are staying home. So when that changes, unless we have other systems in place that can prevent infection, so unless we're testing and tracing and telling people to isolate because we think that they might be infectious, that, that drives down the numbers. Unless we have that those systems in place, then yes, we would expect a second wave. Yeah, that, that really concerns me a lot because I see things getting a little more cavalier. And, you know, with all the uh, pushback now, it's very easy to Monday morning quarterback this. And people are, um, you know, maybe getting a little loose about how they feel about it. And they'll say, well, you know, 20% of people have antibodies. We don't know that. 
But even if you, it's true, 80% don't. And I think we're kind of skiing in some dangerous territory here. And it ties in with the next question from Karen Corgan. Um, she's, she's saying she'd love to know from a real expert what they think should be done as far as stay-at-home orders. Uh, will masks help? And, you know, we talk about that. And how fearful should I be with a six-year-old with virus-induced asthma? And I think that last part is really the most important. Yeah, I'm not a clinician, so I, I I am reluctant to give medical advice. I mean, this is a good thing for Karen to talk about with her pediatrician, but I do think you know it's good to stay cautious. I mean, kids in general we're not seeing big effects. I mean, in general they're they're doing fine, um, but we are seeing some strange things. Asthma so far has not emerged as a big risk factor. Uh, interestingly, it's, there seems to be other risk factors that are more relevant, like hypertension and diabetes. So there's a lot we don't know about this virus, though. So that's why, you know, in general, you know, people are should remain cautious as you know as they can. Masks definitely help. Masks. The big function of masks is to prevent you from infecting others. It's less helpful for preventing you from getting in. Affected. It's more like once enough people are using masks that that will that can hopefully decrease the spread. But that's just one thing in addition to a lot of other things that we're going to be using to try and drive numbers down. Uh, Melissa Baker Price, and she put a second wave is a second wave inevitable, whether two weeks, six months, or even a year. So that's kind of a you know really the question: uh, when can a second wave happen? And, and if so, why not just open up now? And, and she says, I'm genuine question. I'm not a protester or anything. So is, what is the relationship between relaxing restrictions and maybe the time course of a second wave? So there are definitely people who think, oh, it's inevitable. It's going to infect us all. What, do, what, you know, what does it matter? Let's open everything up. I'm not saying that's what Melissa is saying, but there are definitely people saying that. So it's just, if you really think about what that means, it's shocking. I mean, in order for 60, 70% of people to be infected, it's just truly like millions of, I mean, it's, it's, yeah, it's hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people dying just in the U S alone. I mean, it's really a shocking number. So, so I just, we can't just allow, I mean, this is a, one of the richest countries in the world, you know, most developed countries in the world. We can't just, you know, give up. So, and we're seeing successes in other places. So it's really running counter to that narrative that it's inevitable. I mean, we're seeing success in New Zealand and South Korea. So why shouldn't we strive for that? I mean, these are people's lives that are at stake. And so we really need to work to protect, you know, each person who dies, that's someone's family member. So we really need to limit those numbers as much as possible. Yeah, I'm with you. And I, I also feel for the healthcare workers because the physicians and nurses who are treating the people who have these infections, they're also dying. And we should be limiting their exposure as best we can. And doing the social experiment of saying, we're just going to pull the stops out and, you know, let's just, you know, whoever gets sick gets sick and we'll let it roll. You know, that's, it's the vulnerable who'll suffer. The people who have to work in cramped facilities like the uh, meat workers and especially, you know, migrant workers and folks, uh, you know, minority communities seem to be especially affected and physicians and nurses. And none of these folks signed up for this and they didn't make that decision, I think. And so it, my heart goes out to those people who are going to bear the hardest consequences of uh, kind of rebellious reactions against 
uh, stay at home orders. So, you know, that, that's what kind of my two cents on that. Absolutely. So let's wrap up with a question from Linda Hughesby, who says, what is the thing that gives you the most hope today? So there's so many scientists working on the same problem so intently. And when that type of thing happens, there's going to be great discoveries and great innovations. And not just scientists, also people in the community and people from all different types of industries, uh, tech industry, and just people at their home, you know, homes sewing masks. And I mean, so when you have that type of spirit where everyone's coming together to work towards a common goal, almost like a wartime mobilization, you'll see great things. So you know, I'm hopeful about the innovations that we're going to see come out of this, different creative strategies to solve this difficult problem. I'm also hopeful about um, there's different drugs that we're looking into that might help prevent infection. So not a vaccine, but something you can give someone around the time where they may be at risk, like healthcare workers might be able to take something called pre-exposure prophylaxis, which is like a low dose of drug to prevent infection. So I'm very hopeful about those types of trials. Um, And so hopefully, you know, when we combine all of those different innovations together, then we can drive those numbers down quickly. No, that's that's a great point to go out on, you know. And if if I can be so bold as to share, you know, my thought on that too is that I when I do go to some places and I I visit farmers markets a lot. My wife is a farmer and sells at farmers markets. You see a lot of very conscientious behavior and people being so careful about distance and wearing masks and only going to the farmers market because that's uh, where they're getting their groceries. You know, they, they get in and get out, you know, and it, it, the change, like they're not bringing their dog anymore, whatever. It's that kind of conscientiousness that I key off of because the news is all full of the doom and gloom. And I think there are so many silver linings around us um, that we have to sit and look at them. So, you know, I, I think you share that view. Absolutely. It's individual action that's going to really be the most important. So, you know, I mentioned earlier that you're a great follow on Twitter. So, um, if someone wants to follow you, where do they find you? My handle is Natalie X Dean. And uh, my maiden name's Exner, so I had to keep that X in there somehow. <laughs> uh, yeah, so D E A N. Okay, so Natalie, Natalie X Dean. And then any other uh, websites or places where they could read more? I have a website, natalieXDean.com. It's just a professional website, so it just has a little bit about my research and links to where you can find my publications. No, that's fantastic. Well, Natalie Dean, uh, thank you so much for joining me on the Talking Biotech Podcast. This will be very helpful in helping others to share the science. So thank you, thank you, thank you. Thanks for having me. And thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. I really appreciate you sharing these important stories, especially around the issue of COVID-19. Please continue to write reviews on iTunes, share the stories with friends, talk about the podcast and the good things we're doing to spread this information. And if you show us a little love over on the Patreons, that's great too. It allows us to uh, build the audience and that's really important. Thank you very much for listening and we'll talk to you again next week. The Talking Biotech Podcast presents the personal views of Dr. Kevin Folta and its guests. These are not the views of the University of Florida, its faculty, staff, or students. Comment on today's episode on the Talking Biotech Facebook page. Send comments and suggestions to kevinfolta at gmail.com.
And remember, tell a friend, write a review, or float us a little love over on the Patreons. Your support will directly translate into this podcast and broadening science education efforts everywhere. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at calabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.